now. Oh, about noon o'clock, okay. Uh, good morning. And Merry Christmas to you all. All right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them at this point in time? And uh, we're going to be in uh, several passages this morning, really not one central text. If you want to begin in Romans, Romans chapter 5, and then we'll be jumping to John chapter 15. We'll be in Revelation 19. So uh, grab a Bible, follow along, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. And uh, as you're doing that, uh, very happy to be with you all. This morning we're going to continue on in our Christmas sermon series, The Gospel According to Christmas Carols, taking a look at uh, what is one of my favorite Christmas carols. So uh, would you pray with me? And then we'll dive in. So let's pray together, church. Father, we are, uh, it is a privilege for us to sing about the, the birth of your son, uh, to give you our praise and worship and a portion of what you've entrusted to us. I pray now that we would give you um, our full attention our, and our heart's desires. I pray that you would help us now for these next few minutes to focus upon your word as we uh, examine this wonderful Christmas carol before us in the uh, gospel truths that are found in it, and so we pray that my words would be faithful and true, and that you would bless your people through them, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, the King of Kings, and God's people said, Amen. Well, as a part of the normal bedtime routine with my two daughters, is I typically tell them a bedtime story uh, before bed, and as of late, they have been in the habit of asking for uh, true bedtime stories. In other words, they want me to tell stories uh, uh, that are true stories about my own life, stories about when I was a child or when I was a teenager. And so as you can imagine, I sort of run out of stories pretty quickly because my life, well, it's just not all that exciting. And so sometimes I just sort of scrape to find stories. Um, but since it's Christmas time, I've sort of have been telling them stories at night about my own Christmas experiences as a child. And I found myself more than once retelling them the story about one of my favorite Christmas memories. And with my mom and dad here with us today, it's, it's fitting. One of my favorite Christmas memories was driving to and from my grandmother's house on Christmas Eve. And we would always, as far as I recall, listen to the same uh, music, the same tape, and uh, my mom and dad, I think, know what it is. We would always listen to Amy Grant's A Christmas Carol. Now, I don't know about you, if you know or hate this, but we would listen to it seemingly every minute of the car ride, and so I have burned into my memory the words to um, A Tender Tennessee Christmas, for example, or Love Has Come. Now, I'm not going to burst into song, and I don't want you to either, but, uh, you know, this is a great memory. Uh, I, I loved these Christmas songs growing up, and so it sort of got me thinking about, well, well, what, um, what is my favorite Christmas song, favorite Christmas carol? Um, I was at a, a wedding a few weeks back, and I sort of did an informal poll of the folks sitting around my table, because I knew that I would be talking about Christmas carols uh, for the, the, the Sundays in December, and so I wanted to know, hey, what, what's your favorite Christmas song, right? What's your favorite Christmas carol? And so we sort of uh, briefly went around the table sharing our, our favorite Christmas songs, and if I'm not mistaken, I think each and every one of us at the table had at least one song in common. And you can probably guess what that song is. It is the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. O Holy Night. And so this morning, we are going to take a look at three verses of this beloved Christmas carol, O Holy Night. In verse 1, 
the carol talks about the hope of the incarnation. The hope of the incarnation. In the second verse of the carol, we see the humility of the incarnation as we see uh, the, the humili- humility of Jesus Christ uh, becoming a human. And then in the third verse of the carol, I think we will see the heart of the incarnation. That is, uh, what are some of the purposes uh, that God intends for the coming of Christ? And so we see the hope and the humility and the heart of the incarnation in this wonderful carol, O Holy Night. So let's begin with the first verse, the hope of the incarnation. In the opening stanza here, the carol talks about how Jesus gives those who are wearied and tired with sin and strife reason to have hope and to rejoice. It begins then with the, the rather needy, and dreadful state of humanity, the world into which Jesus Christ was born. And so the opening verse begins this way, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. And then it continues, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And so the question then that this opening verse, these opening lines of verse 1 of this Christmas carol beckons us to ask is this, what was the world like? What was the world like upon the incarnation of Christ? In other words, what sort of a world did Jesus Christ come into? Well, I think the the carol answers that question, does it not? It says, long lay the world in what? In sin and error, pining. Now, I don't typically use in my everyday vocabulary the the word pining. I don't know about you. Um, it's, It's not in my sort of everyday talk. What does it mean to pine? To pine after something, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. To pine essentially means to suffer long, or to, to, to suffer painfully. And so the, the state of the world in which Jesus was born was one both of sin and error, pining. That is, friend, every person in this world suffers long and painfully under the, the curse of sin. Uh, we suffer under uh, slavery and into our own sin, right? We are all, the Bible says, servants to sin when we are born. And we suffer under the devastating effects of sin, both in our life and in the lives of those around us. But not only that, we all suffer long, we all pine under the pending judgment of a holy God, justly deserved for our rebellion and sin against Him. We are, in other words, in desperate need of deliverance. And if this were not enough, we pine under a sin-cursed world. We pine under a sin-cursed world, weary with brokenness and injustice and war and racism, and poverty, and all sorts of natural disasters. See, God created us to live in a paradise, but friends, you and I know that we uh, don't live in that sort of a place. And so the, the carol begins, the, uh, the, the starry night, right? And Christ is about to be born, but what kind of a world is he born into? Well, long, 
lay the world in sin and error pining. But there is hope, right? Because if we continue to read, the, the carol says, until he appeared, right? The, the birth of Jesus Christ. Until he appeared. And then we get this curious line. And the soul felt its worth. What does the author mean when he says that at Christ's appearing, that the human life, the human soul, felt its worth? Well, I think that the author means that in Jesus' incarnation, we see how much we are worth to God. In the incarnation, we get a, a picture of how valuable human beings made in his image are worth to God. So follow me here. How does the incarnation show that? Well, I think we get the answer when we consider a simple truth. And that is that the worth of something is found in what we are willing to give up in order to get it. Are you with me? The worth of something is found in what we are willing to give up in order to get that object. So let me ask you a very simple question. Is a bottle of Coke, a 20-ounce plastic bottle of Coke, worth to you $4.50? Yes or no? No. Okay. So uh, most of you said that a bottle of Coke is not worth $4.50. So, so likely true for most of us. However, if you happen to find yourself in the magical paradise in South Florida known as Disneyland... If you happen to find yourself there and you are parched with thirst and you happen to go to a a vendor and you say, I would like a Coke, please. And they say, that'll be $4.20. And I looked it up and that's what it is. Okay. If you find yourself there and you whip out your wallet and you hand them over a $5 bill, is that Coke worth $4.50 to you? Yes or no? Yes, it is. Because that is what you're willing to what? To pay for it in order to get the Coke. Okay, so with that in mind, now consider what God the Father was willing to pay and what His Son Jesus Christ was willing to pay to purchase us back from our sin and rebellion and hell. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Wonderful verse. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ dies, died for us. See, Jesus valued us how much? What was he willing to give in order to get us? His own life, right? He was, he was willing to get his own life. The Father was willing to give up his own Son in order to redeem us, in order to forgive us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he did that when we were at our best? No. He did that when we were at our what? At our worst, right? When we were still sinners, rebels, enemies, haters of God. That is when Christ died for us. I love it how the German reformer Martin Luther puts it. When he wrote, God doesn't love us because of our worth. We are of worth because God loves us. You see the difference there? And that is what I think this carol is teaching. Not only does the incarnation reveal our worth, but it gives us a a, a hope and a joy because a new day, the day of salvation, has broken through. And so the carol continues, a thrill of hope, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What then is the appropriate response to the birth of Christ? 
fall on your knees, hear the angel voices, O night divine. And so in verse 1 of this great carol, we see the hope of the incarnation. Christ has come. He has come into a world that is broken, that is in sin and error pining. He has paid the penalty for our sins and has offered us salvation, a wonderful hope. But not only does this great carol speak of the hope of the incarnation, but in verse 2, it speaks of the humility the humility of the incarnation. Now, you may not be familiar with verse 2. Most of the time, I think we sing verses 1 and 3. But we shouldn't, because verse 2, man, it's beautiful, and it has wonderful, rich Christology, emphasizing the, the humility of Jesus to add on hum, humanity to his deity and to be born in a lowly manger. And so verse 2 begins poetically, Describing the search of the wise men. You know those, how many wise men? Nah, we don't know, right? Those wise men that came from the east, right? To seek a child born king of the Jews. And they were led by the light of a supernatural star. We, we get this picture in verse 2. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle, we stand. So led by light of a star, sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from the Orient land. And so we get this picture of the wise men. They're being led by the light of the supernatural star, and they're led to Bethlehem where Jesus is. With glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. And so then the question that the carol begs is, what did they find there, if you will? What did they find there in that cradle, so to speak? Well, it tells us as we continue in the carol. The carol continues, The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. And so what did uh, those wise men What kind of a person did they find that day? Well, the the carol tells us, rightly so, that they found no ordinary babe, no no ordinary toddler, no, no ordinary person. In fact, he is the king of kings. He is the one who lays in the lowly manger. This, this phrase, king of kings, if you've been in church or if you're a Christian uh, a while, it's, it's probably sort of a familiar phrase, but it's sort of worth pondering just for a moment. Because the phrase tells us that Jesus is not just a king, but that Jesus is what? He is the king, right? The king. But, but not only that, right? It tells us he's, he's not just the king, but he is the king of kings, right? That is the ultimate king, the supreme sovereign, the only true potentate. In fact, twice in your New Testament, both found in the book of Revelation, we see this title ascribed to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the end in the book of Revelation. There in Revelation chapter 19, we get a glorious picture of the return of Christ to the earth to bring judgment to all those who oppose him and salvation to those who wait on him. There in chapter 19, we get a picture of a warrior king returning to the earth and uh, we get this wonderful description of him in Revelation 19, starting in verse 16. There we read, And on his robe and on his thigh 
He has a name written. That is, this is who he is, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, here's the sort of the ironic thing here as we think about the birth of Christ. The king of kings lay thus in a lowly manger, the carol says. Here's the thing about kings. Kings uh, are normally given, well, they're normally given the royal treatment, are they not? Because they are royal. They are kings and they are treated like kings, right? They receive uh, the royal treatment from birth, from the time that they're born, until the very time of their death, they are given this royal treatment. We were sort of exposed to this to some degree recently in our country as we mourn the loss of a former president, George H.W. Bush. My mom and dad live in College Station, the final resting place of uh, President Bush. And I don't know if you happen to catch any of this or not, but there was a sort of a grand funeral procession uh, via train from Houston down to the resting place. And there were Navy jets flying over and people lining this railroad track to pay, to pay homage and respect to this president. Now, of course, uh, the president is not like a king, but just by way of il- illustration, that's how we treat People of great significance, right? That's how we treat royals, if you will. But the great irony here in this carol that the Bible affirms is that the king of kings lay thus, where? In a lowly manger. The king of kings in a feeding trough, right? The humility of the image has to strike us. It must hit us. In fact, Pastor Eric Raymond, in a short article entitled The Beautiful Irony in the Manger, writes about the humility of the Incarnation. And he says this, The Creator comes to dwell among His creation. The one who swaddled the stars with darkness is now clothed... A strange and fascinating That's story not right. of O Holy Man. Here we stop that. That's not what he said. <laughs> okay, let's pick it up again. The one who swaddled the stars with darkness is now clothed in cloth as a baby. This is one reason, he writes, I love the Christmas season. It forces me to be reminded again of the depth of Christ's condescension for helpless people like me. He says the depth of his humility is infinite because he stepped down from his heaven's throne for he is God. But also he stepped down to serve one like me who rang up an eternal debt with an infinite price tag. And Christ with his infinite value earned for sinners this everlasting righteousness. And then he says this, stare at the manger and marvel. I think that's what this carol beckons us to do. The king of kings lay thus in a lowly manger. Well, it continues. It continues to say that in his humble incarnation, Jesus came to be one of us. He came to be among us as Emmanuel. He came to be able to relate to us, to to experience our full humanity as our Savior. And so the carol continues. In our trials, born to be our friend. And then he says, says, he knows our need to our weaknesses, no stranger. 
Uh, I'm reminded in this first phrase, in our trials, he is born to be our friend of the words of Jesus in John 15. So if you have your Bible, you can turn back there to uh, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. There in John chapter 15, uh, we see Jesus is with his disciples, sort of his last hurrah with them, and he's giving them important words, important teachings. And in John 15, starting in verse, six, uh, verse 13, he says these words, Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says these words. You are my friends. If you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, he says, I have called you friends. For everything that I I, I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And so here in these verses, we're reminded of the words of this carol, right? He, 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 in our trials, he, he's born to be our friend. Christian, do you know that if you are a follower of Christ, if you have been born again, if you do what he's, he commands you to, that you're no longer a servant, but you are a friend of Christ. Maybe you've heard the saying that you pick your friends, but not your family. Just think about that for a moment, right? You pick your friends, but not your family. And that's sort of natural, right? Family, we may like, we may want, or we may not like, and we may not want, right? But regardless, the, the, the truth is, is that they're our family, right? The relationship is there. We don't choose them necessarily. But, but friends, is that, is that the, the same with, with friendship? No, it's different, right? We choose our friends. We want to be with them. We love them. And we voluntarily have a relationship with them. Friends, it's the same with Christ. He chose to be our friends. And what is the ultimate sign? What's the ultimate proof of his friendship with us? Well, I think it's the fact that he was willing to lay down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down his his life for one's friends. I ran across a poem, and it's short, but sweet. It says this, Full many a king a golden crown has worn, but only one a diadem of thorn. Full many a king has sat on jeweled throne, but only one hung on a cross alone. See, he is our friend. He, he laid down his life for us. But not only that, but in our weaknesses... In our weaknesses, he is no stranger, right? He knows our needs. He knows what it's like, in a sense, to be in our shoes. He is, he is with us. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we see this marvelous truth that Jesus Christ became a human so that in our time of need, we could go to him as a merciful and faithful high priest. And as a, as a human, fully God and fully man, he could atone for our sins as our representative. So Hebrews chapter 2, you can see it on the screen behind me. Verse 17 tells us, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the world. Fittingly, the second verse of this carol ends by calling us to bow before such a humble king. Behold your king, the carol says, before him lowly bend. Behold your king, before him lowly bend.
And so we've seen in verse 1 the hope that the incarnation brings. In verse 2 we've seen the, the humility of the incarnation. But in verse 3 um, we see the heart of the incarnation. And, and by that I mean the implications of the incarnation or, or one of the intended results of the incarnation. And the author chooses to focus in on one implication in particular. Namely, that Christ beckons, commands, and teaches his followers to love one another. To love one another. And so verse 3 begins this way. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Let me ask you a quick question, friends. Did Jesus teach his born-again followers... Did Jesus command his followers to love one another? Yes or no? Yes, he did, right? Yes, he did. And so in John chapter 13, starting in verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. I think that's what the carol may be referring to when it says, uh, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, right? That is, this is not a suggestion, Jesus did not say, hey, it's a good idea if you love one another, did he? He didn't say, maybe if you want to, you should love one another, did he? No, right? This is a new command that I give to you, love one another. But but then he continued, right? He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think this is what the carol refers to when it says, Truly, he taught us to love one another. In other words, Jesus didn't just command that we love one another, but he did what? He showed us, right? He demonstrated the type of love that we are to have uh, uh, for one another as brothers and sisters in his very life. He, he, he exemplified it, right? How did he teach us to love one another? In word or in deed? Well, well, both, right? Both in word and in deed. He loved us, friends, with a sacrificial love. He loved us with a selfless love. He loved us with a purifying love. And in John chapter 15, we read in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, right? We've seen it before. To lay down one's life for one's friends. And so he commands that we love one another and he shows us how to love one another. Well, the story is told of a very very typical Sunday morning in the deep south in a southern gospel church. And the choir had just finished a big special. And they sat down in the choir loft, which was uh, behind the pastor's podium. And the pastor had just ascended to the pulpit, and he was about to begin his address, when suddenly a, a teenage girl who was in the choir stood up from the choir loft And she made her way uh, past the pastor on the stage and all the way down and began walking the center aisle. Now, this was certainly unexpected and unusual. And so there were whispers and the pastor was shocked and everybody else was shocked. And they were curious what this young lady was doing. Well, she continued down the center aisle and she slipped in uh, one of the aisles in the back pews and she sat next to one of her friends. And there she gave her friend a big bear hug and wrapped her arms around her friend. And as the pastor in the church realized what the young lady was doing, their 
a sense of shock and awe turned into, uh, well, well, tears and, and, and smiles because they knew the story. See, the young lady's uh, friend, her, her mom, had recently passed away. And so she made her way into church late, and, the, and the, the young lady in the choir loft saw her friend, and she knew that it was hard for her to come to church, and so she came to, to be with her friend and to console her. And well, the pastor broke the silence, and he said, I was going to preach on <clears throat> John 15, and Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us, but this sermon has de- been delivered this day in a much more powerful way. And so he skipped the sermon And he invited the choir to come sing the closing song. Friends, truly, he taught us to love one another. Well, the verse concludes with one, I think, even more specific, practical implication, fleshing out this idea of loving one another. And that is the recognition of the dignity of every human being made in God's image. So, the carol continues. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise. We let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Well, in just a moment, we're going to watch a video that teaches us about the, the, a really remarkable history of this song. But the American translator of this hymn was a staunch, a staunch abolitionist. See, he lived and, and, uh, and sort of edited this song during the time of the American Civil War. And he wanted to add these lines to the carol because he right, rightly believed from Scripture that that forced slavery was wrong from places like 1 Timothy 1, Revelation chapter 18. And so he added this line. He sort of changed the original carol. And he added, uh, right, chains shall he break for the slave. The slave is our brother. He may have had in mind a really powerful story, often read and not well known, a book in your New Testament uh, by, the, by the name of uh, Philemon. Are you familiar with this little book, right? It's just like one chapter, and so it's easy to miss. But it is a fantastic story, a fantastic story of a runaway slave that somehow ran into Paul became a Christian, and Paul actually knew the slave's owner. And so he writes this, this letter about this slave by the name of Onesimus, and he writes uh, to Philemon, who is the slave owner of Onesimus, uh, basically saying, hey, um, this former slave, this slave of yours who's run away has become a Christian. And he's useful for me. And so it's a fantastic little book. But in verse 15, Paul writes these words. He says, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you, that is, to you, slave owner, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. And then notice what he says. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear what? As a dear brother, right? He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. See, in, in Onesimus' case, this was literally, literally true. The slave is our brother. And so we've seen the hope of the incarnation. We have seen the humility of the incarnation. We have seen the heart 
of the Incarnation. I'm going to invite us now to watch a short video uh, that tells the amazing history and origins of this song. And then we'll stand and we'll sing it together. So guys, roll tape. A strange and fascinating story of O Holy Night began in France. In 1847, Placide Capot was a poet in a small French town. As a non-religious man, he was probably shocked when his parish priest asked him to pen a poem for Christmas Mass. In a dusty coach traveling down a bumpy road to France's capital city, Placide Capot considered the priest's request. Using the Gospel of Luke as his guide, he imagined witnessing the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Thoughts of being present on that blessed night inspired him, and by the time he arrived in Paris, Cantique de Noël had been completed. Moved by his own work, he decided this was not just a poem, but a song in need of a master musician's hand. Not musically inclined himself, the poet turned to one of his friends, Adolphe Adam, for help. As a man of Jewish ancestry for Adolphe, the words of Cantique de Noël represented a day he didn't celebrate and a man he did not view as the Son of God. Nevertheless, Adam quickly went to work, adding a beautiful original score to compose powerful words. Adam finished work, pleased both poet and priest. The song was performed just three weeks later at a midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Initially, Cantique de Noël was wholeheartedly accepted by the church in France, and the song quickly found its way into various Christmas services. But when Capot walked away from the faith and became a part of the socialist movement, and church leaders discovered that Adam was a Jew, the song which had quickly grown to be one of the most beloved Christmas songs in France was suddenly and uniformly banned by the church. However... A decade later, a reclusive American writer brought it to a whole new audience halfway around the world. John Sullivan Dwight not only felt that America needed to hear this carol, there was something else in the song that moved him beyond the story of the birth of Christ. As an ardent abolitionist, Dwight strongly identified with the lines of the third verse, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. The text supported Dwight's own view of slavery in the South. His English translation of O Holy Night quickly found favor in America, especially in the North during the Civil War. Back in France, legend has it that on Christmas Eve 1871, in the midst of fierce fighting during the Franco-Prussian War, a French soldier suddenly jumped out of his muddy trench. Both sides stared at the seemingly crazed man. Boldly standing with no weapon in his hand or at his side, he lifted his eyes to the heavens and sang the opening lines of Cantique de Noël. After completing all three verses, a German infantryman climbed out of his hiding place and answered with a few robust verses of a sacred German carol. The story goes that the fighting stopped for the next 24 hours while the men on both sides observed a temporary peace in honor of Christmas Day. The song's legacy continued on Christmas Eve 1906 as Reginald Fezenden, 
A 33-year-old university professor did something long thought impossible. Using a new type of generator, Fezenden spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a man's voice was broadcast over the airwaves. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, he began in a clear, strong voice. Shocked radio operators on ships and astonished wireless owners at newspapers sat slack-jawed as their normal coded impulses were replaced by a professor reading from the Gospel of Luke. It must have seemed like a miracle, hearing a voice somehow transmitted to those far away. Some might have believed they were hearing the voice of an angel. After finishing his recitation of the birth of Christ, Fezenden picked up his violin and played, Oh Holy Night, the first song ever sent through the air via radio waves. When the carol ended, so did the broadcast, but not before music had found a new medium that would take it around the world. Since that first rendition at a small Christmas Mass in 1847, O Holy Night has been sung millions of times in churches in every corner of the world. And since the moment a handful of people first heard it played over the radio, the carol has gone on to become one of the most recorded and played spiritual songs. This incredible work, requested by a forgotten parish priest, written by a poet who would later split from the church, given soaring music by a Jewish composer, and brought to the Americans to serve as much as a tool to spotlight the sinful nature of slavery as to tell the story of the birth of a Savior? Yes. It has become one of the most beautiful, inspired pieces of music ever created.